because I was there's more vibra there's more vibration. You're strapped in. You, your ass is on the ground. It's pretty much you know you're skating on the ground. Um, and then you have to brake very early on a motorbike. So I was it was a trap for me because I'm going in way too deep. <laughs> going slower and then it all feels really really quick at that point you know because a i've got the talent and b you know i feel that um the sensation of speed is a little bit lower hello and welcome to last on the brakes the moto gp podcast once again, trying to bring you a little lockdown entertainment. And you were just listening to legendary Australian Formula One driver, Mark Webber, who joins me, Fran Wild, and Matt Dunn on this week's episode. Yes, absolutely he does. Uh, this week we're going to be primarily talking about the parallels between the top motorsports on the planet, MotoGP and Formula One, how the feelings of freedom compare and also the difference on the physical sides as well. And specifically for Mark, one of the reasons why we want to get in touch with him, we want to talk about, very appropriately, the balance between the relationship that drivers or riders have with their teams. But of course, as we mentioned, it's the MotoGP podcast. Mark's a huge MotoGP fan, so we want to ask him all about his heroes, who, he, which posters he has on the ball growing up who inspired him to actually get racing in general who his favorite riders in the current crop of gp riders are including his thoughts on jack miller's move to ducati now fran i'm going to pass it on to you because you were the one who made the great shout of bringing mark on you are the massive f1 fan out of this uh, duo of you and i uh, although of course <laughs> I do dip in, uh, in and out here and there, watching F1. A huge, massive respect for what they're able to do. And even more so after speaking to Mark, because some of the stuff he came out with there just blew my mind. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy this conversation, dear listeners. If you're not a fan of F1, don't be put off, because we're mainly talking about MotoGP. Because, like you say, I'm a massive F1 fan. My heart is split between the two. Uh, but Mark Webber's most definitely is in reverse as well. He's such a huge fan of the sport. I think it's really interesting perspectives when you have someone with amazing pedigree on four wheels, but also such a breadth of knowledge and love for two wheels as well. Yeah, And uh, I certainly enjoyed it quite a lot. Yeah, really interesting to get to chat with him. And I thought it was in his trophy room. Apparently it's not. It's just his office there. But Mark's so experienced, not just with his own field of, of racing cars as well, but he has been uh, in touch with many of motorcycle racers and Grand Prix riders. He was with Mark Marquez and Danny Pedrosa when they first tried F1 cars a couple of years back, I think it was. He's been on some track dates, as you'll find out, with legendary World Superbike rider and wildcard race winner MotoGP, Troy Bayliss. So Mark's breadth of knowledge really is absolutely huge and loves a of adventure biking you'll hear about a little bit later on too but as ever we do want you guys to we want to hear your perspectives as well so get in touch in the comments or tweet us wherever you may feel we want to know about your preconceived notions of the parallels between MotoGP and formula one do we cover them all do we miss any we're happy to chat to you guys in the comments or tweets please be nice as ever really appreciate that and at the <laughs> end of course do uh, stick around for the juicy Kenwood quickfire round, which brings up some stellar, stellar answers this time. And I mean, credit to us, Fran. High fives. Some good suggestions, too. <laughs> <laughs> Not so bad. I think we did okay. But uh, yeah, definitely get in touch and see how this conversation maybe does change your perception. If you are a fan of one more than the other, maybe you found this episode thinking, who are these guys? What is this sport? And you're not from the MotoGP community at all. Um, let us know what you think of what Mark says, how that changes your mind. And uh, yeah, enjoy our chat. I think it's a good meaty deep dive into some top level motorsport. Um, and so basically want to hear like the origin story I know we're doing some research beforehand I've got, I've got to say before we actually get going uh, Fran is the mega F1 Fran uh, yep. I, I also am very partial <laughs> to F1 watch races with you but uh, had to do research before this found out your dad owned a bike shop when you were growing up that right? that's right yeah so um, yeah he was a Yamaha dealer so mainly dirt bikes and agricultural too so we were quite rural so he do a lot of ag bikes ag machinery um but not much street high-end performance bikes. But, I mean, I was only young then. I wasn't allowed near. You know, I could get on the YZ80s, 125s and 250s, but not on the street bikes. So, um, yeah. But, no, that's how it started, mate. Two wheels, you know, Wayne Rainey, Kevin Swans, Mick Dillon, Eddie Lawson. They were my – they were posters on my wall, apart from, obviously, El McPherson and all the other – all the other. <laughs> I had, you know, fast guys and fast women. Excellent. Good combination. 
So it's quite an Australian kind of classic situation that is, isn't it? We see it with Jack Miller, Casey Stoner as well. Dirt bikes, rural, having that space and freedom to be able to kind of try that out. Is that then where your kind of passion for motorsport in general came from? Absolutely, yes. Very similar to the boys. Um, yeah, we, we were very lucky. Australia is, is a lot of room. And, you know, for us, we didn't need a lot of your room to have much fun, you know, and uh, it's not only, it's not until you start to travel around and come to Europe and sort of realize that um, there's just, le- there is obviously less room, but, um, you know, it's, you know, you take it for granted as a young lad when you're five, six, seven, eight years old, dad said, there's a paddock here, you can ride around in there, and there's a jerry can, you can fill your bike up and keep riding and just stay on the bike, actually, you know, and that's all you got to do. So um, I think that was a really nice burden to have, like in terms of, you know, the resilience and the character that we, that I personally got from being able to go out and learn, you know, the mistakes that you can make and, and have all that, I mean, space. I'm not talking, you know, thousands of acres. I'm just talking about at least a little bit of room to go out and start practicing your bike. Um, and that was really enjoyable. So, yeah, I think that when it's like a language, when you learn that from such a young age, obviously it's ingrained in you so early, which was very beneficial. What point did you stop from? So I guess you wrote, you grew up then riding bikes in your backyard or carts and stuff like that. But what was there ever a time where you actually thought, hmm, bikes, cars? When did it? When did the distinction come around? I think naturally it was my parents, mate. To be honest, because they, I had the enthusiasm for both, but just by some miracle, the, the bikes, you know, whether it was because dad had the the dealership there. And they just sort of got weaned away from me. Magically, they just sort of started to disappear. Was, was that a mum who did that, that more? Yeah. <laughs> that and, and I think there was one day where I had a, I actually had a pretty big off and I didn't have much skin left on me and Dad didn't take me back to the house. He just took me straight to get me cleaned up, um, probably at A&E. And I think that's when the penny dropped that we might need to change regimes. In terms of my appetite for, you know, I had such a lust for, you know, the speed and enjoying, you know, the independence of using that type of machinery at a young age. And also in the town I grew up in, you know, there was there was other, you know, tricky distractions in terms of, um, you know, there was you can get into mischief. And I think Dad knew that, you know, having if he could keep me just ticket over in the go kart, um, although we were not uber professional by any means, we weren't travelling around the country with, you know, flash this and flash that. It was it was reasonably humble to say the least, but it was a very good. Uh, distraction for me because I loved it and I was doing his head in with it, which he loved because he said, if you're doing my head in with it, then we're going to go with it, but I'm not going to be forcing you to be doing these things. So, um, yeah, so around my, the transition happened around 12, 12 years of age. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, I've got to say that the sit here and then that your dad was like, you got to love it to be able to carry on with it. That's something which you hear time and time again. Actually, the most successful guys, their parents have just sort of encouraged them to love it more almost. But then actually, well, I suppose then you do get some guys whose parents just train them to be robotic winners. And yeah. that's it. But it sounds like you were very much the case where it's it, it was just bred around you enjoying it the whole time. That's right, buddy. I think that we rarely had a crossword. Like I was so, again, like dad, you know, he was, you know, he wasn't like, oh, fifth is great, let's carry on, just keep doing this, fifth and sixth is great. But he had this really good temperament that, you know, I had the desire of a sort of, I suppose, a self-discipline, you know, you, every day's a school day, I'm still learning now, don't get me wrong, mate, but you, when you're coming through, you're like, I want to do better, I want to beat that guy. Like, how's he still doing faster lap times than me? I want to sort this out and I want to get on top of it. And and naturally it just, it, 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 was, a, it was a pretty good, you know, it was a tremendous relationship we had, but he just had this good way of still not having friction between us and having this unusual, well, unwanted tension of his goal and my goal. Like it wasn't about, you know, he didn't unload on me when it wasn't going, you know, my way. He was like, okay, well, how can we do better next time? Which was really good. That does sound like a pretty healthy kind of situation there to yeah. both make sure that you still love it and make sure that you kind of keep progressing and stuff. But there are there are a few similarities between the sports and modes of transport as well. There's also a lot of differences. But what's your favourite thing about bikes? Because even in an open cockpit car, it's a very different situation to being on something and just outside. <laughs> no question about it. I think that, um, you know, bang for buck motorbikes are the best motor transport in the world, you know, what you can do on them, especially like I'm going through a bit of an adventure bike phase at the moment, you know, know, whether it's on a BMW 1250 or there's lots of adventure bikes out there, but I've just done some good trips in Australia, which I really, really enjoyed. 
I love the sunrise, the sunset, you know, taking nature in, you know, that sort of, like, as you, as you say, it's sort of the cold wind on the neck. So it's, it's very visceral. In a car, you don't really get that. You just drive along, you know, okay, this is cool, this is fine, but it's not as engaging. And I think that, you know, motorbikes have always done that. And I've got so many heroes that I look up to, whether they're, you know, past racing you know, competitors in terms of two wheels or guys that just did it recreationally. Um, but there's a lot of really, really old motorcycle guys that are just still so cool. They're just cool guys. They just are because I just think they got they're so switched on. When you ride a bike, you got to be engaged. You got to be using everything. You got to be you know you got to be coordinated. You got to have your middle ear fired up. You got to be yeah because it's real and there's consequences. So in terms of your own decisions, so I think that that's enjoyable for someone like me who had a different career, of course, in, in in terms of competing in car racing, but going into into recreational motorcycle riding, um, it's it's really enjoyable because. You know, it is. It makes you feel sensational when you get it right. It's so technical. You're never ever going to get it nailed every every time. You can find one or two percent to be better. Um, and you can do it with buddies too. Like you know, look at these road rides you can go and do if you want a little campfire. You want to do this or that. Oh, and of course, track days, which I haven't. I've done a little bit of track days. I did one with Troy Bayless actually in Australia, which was frightening to say the least. But <laughs> um, yeah, so motorbikes are. They're the la- one of the last things I think we have in terms of still hanging in because humans want convenience now and we want, always want shortcuts. We want safety and no risk. We want all these things. Motorbikes is really the la- one of the last things I think the, a human can expose themselves to that, that there's still the gap is still relatively close to the 50. Yes, there's ABS. Yes, there's traction control. The leathers have improved. The helmets, all that's cool. But you've still got to lean look after it look ahead you know all the bases on a dirt bike all those things are still as i think it's one of the closest sports technically to what it's always been in its entirety which i love i gotta say listen to that i'm kind of stuck on where to go next because there's so many things there we can take so many different routes i think you should probably one when this finishes start your own podcast um <laughs> but two go and ride your bike as well actually the one podcast but when it talks about two wheels i love podcasts oh, but that's what i think we're finding actually when we're asking guests to come on now we say would you want to come up and talk more talk motor gp and i think if we ask them do you want to just talk about your career they'd be like nah but when it's like do you want to talk about motor gp they're like yes let's go <laughs> Talking about, oh, then I finished fifth and then I got a punch here and like, wait a minute, that's just a snooze fest, isn't it? You want to talk about experiences. This is, yeah, this is kind of our kind of mission statement with this podcast. Like if I already know the answer to a question because I've read it in 45 magazines, then we don't usually put it on the list of things to ask. So hopefully if we bore you, please shout up and tell us no that's not on the brief because uh, the, the people that we put on the list as well we're, we're thinking of how the stories that you've got in your career are quite relatable to what other people have, have got um and, and sort of just making general comparisons to the sport but in in a bit of a follow-up to what you were saying i do want to ask about the the freedom feeling that you get when you're at maximum speed in an f1 car compared to even when you're just on, a, on an adventure bike or trying to chase troy bayless on a track day um <laughs> how does it compare when you're in that cockpit because it must be so intense and i'm pretty sure in the old hyperbole around like the netflix series and everything like that, people did say it's there's a freedom feeling about that speed but what's the freedom feeling like compared to a bike do you think or do you know um well because i was reasonably highly trained to drive an f1 car that was my that was my skill set um i was more certainly more relaxed um and felt i i knew what i was doing i could trust my own decision process to a degree um, and it was, and it was a job. It was a responsibility. Whenever I drove that car, I was, I had an absolute job to do representing myself, the team, my country and, and getting results done. Whenever I'm on a motorbike, it's much, much more, you know, it's less serious. It's, it's more enjoyable. Um, like not that I didn't enjoy my F1 career, but it just, it has a, a, a different in- intensity about it. Um, but yes, doing 350k an hour at Monza and F1 car, clearly it's quick, you know, and, and you're, you're, it's quite funny to, I spoke to Jorge Lorenzo about this in terms of the sensation of speed because, you know, those boys and Valentino, there's been a few of those boys do the crossover, of course, on, on, on a MotoGP or, or even Mick did it. Mick Dillon did a 500cc mm-hmm. to the Williams back in the day. Um, and I think that the position is quite unique um, in, a, in a Grand Prix car, but sort of like lying down like we're in a bathtub with your feet quite high and sort of, you know, sitting back with a steering wheel in front, front and you can't really see a huge amount you've got a very small even the helmet eye port is very different to a to a to a motorcycle helmet. 
motorcycle helmet is much wider. The aperture is huge. So we, the sort of inputs are much, um, so the peripheral vision is, is, is much greater on a motorbike. And you're hanging off the motorbike and you're much freer and you're all that sort of thing, but you're, a lot, you're much further off the ground. You know, uh, your eye line is much further off the ground than you are in, in, in a Formula One car. So Jorge was of the opinion. He thought he felt like he went faster. And like the deception for the same speed was faster in an F1 car than in just in a straight line, not braking mm-hmm. like all that, because obviously that's a totally different topic. But in terms of, yeah, the speed on the straight. And I sort of have to, I was surprised because I've done, I haven't done many track days, but I was like, and it was a trap for me because on the straights, a motorbike didn't feel massively quick compared to an F1. It felt quick, don't get me wrong, but I still felt, because I was, there's more vibra- there's more vibration, you're strapped in, you, your ass is on the ground, it's pretty much, you know, you're skating on the ground. Um, and then you have to brake very early on a motorbike. So I was, it was a trap for me because I'm going in way too deep, <laughs> really going slower, and then it all feels really, really quick at that point, you know, because A, I haven't got the talent, and B, you know, I feel that um, the sensation of speed is a little bit lower until you lean the bike over and you start feeling quick and all the rest of it. So that's a very convoluted answer, mate, but it's basically, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that for me, I feel reasonably similar. I know some of the other guys have thought maybe a bit quicker in F1 car, purely in a straight line, um, and that doesn't make sense. None of that makes sense. Like a, a MotoGP bike in a straight line is an absolute missile, as is a, as a super bike or where they're so quick. And then, let alone if you go to Bray Hill and watch John McGuinness come through there, <laughs> that's just which you can't even, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I enjoy, look. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly more comfortable in a car than I'm on a bike. And an adventure bike, you know, I've got I've done 130, 140k an hour on a bike. I'm not, you know, it's more been. I've had more motors on an adventure bike on gravel doing, you know, 20 mile an hour than I have, you know, on, uh, you know, obviously, you know, a 300 kilo bike is not much fun when, you, when it's all going wrong. Going on from that then and that kind of perception of speed, certainly in F1, there was last year, I think it was last year at Suzuka, there was the onboard footage of Charles Leclerc going around 130R, basically one-handed. And a lot of people are like, oh, this shows how much easier it is. Yeah. I think sometimes MotoGP and bike fans can kind of not really grasp the fact that, yeah, okay, the car's stuck to the floor, but at some corners it's like, the force on you is just incredible. Yeah. Do you think the challenges have just got different in terms of that in F1, or do you think it is maybe a little bit easier than it used to be? Actually, both of the sports have gone on a similar journey in terms of the penalties. Like, you know, if we look at early early phase motorcycling, you know, without, as I say, with all out the electronics and, and of course, the equipment was very, very basic. So the guys were getting very big injuries there. The same for us, you know, in the 70s. I mean, that was the killer years cars are exploding, fuel tanks going. So in terms of the safety and the consequences for the riders, I think it's been, and drivers, I think it's been a similar journey in terms of equipment. You know, we look at, look at what Mark Marquez has done in the last three or four years. I mean, he's not, you know, I think if he wore Mick Dillon's kit and, and, and rode Mick Dillon's bike, I don't think Mark Marquez would be, um, you know, enjoying the sort of health he might do to this day because obviously he's, he's, he is, I mean, he crashes brilliantly. He's very good at it, obviously, and he's, there's a lot of technique to it. But the same for us, you know, that we went on a journey there. So there's there's one component which is the consequences and the sort of build up to the to the level of of um, the sort of the template of that knife edge. Um, and yeah, I think that look, it's no question about it. I think it's easier for for a motorbike guy to try and get used to a Formula One car, like for us to to qualify for a MotoGP race. I mean. It's just not going to happen. Like we're going to be absolutely nowhere. So are they. They're going to be nowhere as well. Like I mentioned, I've had this chat to Valentino when he was driving the Ferrari and whatnot and saying you can go at one track and not get too badly in terms of pace and speed. And But then if you go to Monaco and it starts raining and you've got to drive an F1 car, of course, you've got to look like absolutely, you know, you've got to look pathetic. So same for us. Like, you know, Lewis, I think he did a comparison the other day, didn't go too bad. But in terms of when you're that brilliant at one mode, you can't, be phenomenal both. I know we had, you know, John Servetes and, and Hale Wood or some other guys were, were, were awesome at, at both back in the day, but now it's so specialised. Um, I think actually Colin McRae was one of the best guys. Colin was obviously, you know, un, very quick on a, on a street bike from what I hear, very fast on, on two wheels, not too bad in the F1 car and, of course, I believe in the rally car. So if you're comfortable with that movement, you've got that middle ear and that balance and, and, and you can predict and feel, then, yes, that's that's important. But... Um, 
I think the fans, you know, we love all the F1 guys love MotoGP, and, and and okay, do we want the fans to love us as well? Then no, they've got a choice. But I think that you know, ultimately, if we took the top five guys from a MotoGP race and put him in our race, I think that the fans would feel that they might give us a bit of credibility. But that's not what it's about because we're you know we're, we're specialists in our own field. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's they're just. The excellence is very narrow, and that's how it should be because you're supposed to be the best in the world in your chosen field. I feel that um, a lot of fans of both sports get best of both worlds because if you compare watching a MotoGP bike go into Maggots and Beckett's and Silverstone, you think, oh my God, it's amazing. You then watch an F1 car do it absolutely flat out, and you're like, yeah. What? That, yeah. that is insane. And and things <laughs> yeah. like that just I think I think if people took the time to appreciate you no, know, something you said that really resonated with me there, which which I don't think about so much, is yeah, your butt is literally what that far off the floor maybe when you're when you're driving? Like, <laughs> like wow, it's unbelievable. It is. <laughs> it's crazy as well. Like what you said about driving position as well. I think it's in one of the car museums in Germany, maybe the Merck Museum, they have like kind of the thing that you can get into not a proper car but like to see the position honestly it blew my tiny mind even after like 15 years watching f1 by that point it it doesn't really occur to you that you're literally like just chilling out in there essentially when you're not driving it feels like you're in an armchair until you realize you've got to do 300 k's yeah the seating position is really weird i've had a lot of sports people um Men and women, lots of you know, lots of different sort of spheres. Whether it's tennis, whether it's MotoGP, whether it's you know, lots of different people wanting to jump in the car, skiers, downhill skiers, and they're like, first thing they say is like, how do you see? Like, how can you race this thing? We can't see it. We cannot see a thing, you know. And that's the other great thing about all these experts, obviously at home, which we have a lot of viewers, which is fine. Like people, but when you're strapped in the car, you got a helmet on, you got your earplugs in, balaclava on, visor down, like you can't see, and that's not an excuse. Like we all race wheel to wheel as hard as we can, but there is small errors of judgment and that's that, that, that can be mistakes and um yeah so it's it's a very it's a it's it's an environment in the seating position that is like really no other it's not like a street car or you know, a motorbike it's it's very and it's tight it's, it's claustrophobic if you're claustrophobic it's not the environment you are you're very um when on twitter you're you're quite vocal and you're you're more you're more unhappy to talk to fans is there anything you ever found that you know some of the bike fans who might be like oh they with the begrudge sort of f1 a little bit is there anything you wish that they knew about what it took to drive an f1 car that's not so obvious that you know perhaps they don't realize sometimes oh i think i suppose probably the the g-force is is something which is is hard to explain i think that they think we're less of lesser men because obviously we can walk away from the crashes. I suppose that's something which the MotoGP guy, which we are, like that. It is. It is. They are. There is different consequences, and, and that's why there is a tremendous amount of respect. And I, I know, and I can see why people follow motorcycle racing because it is. It's a brilliant sport, and that's why we're here today talking about it because we love it. Why do they not gravitate so much to ours, or why would they be negative towards ours? I'm not sure, mate. I think that there's 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 also um, because we have, you know, manufacturers involved in MotoGP as well, but we have we we have bigger just by volume because there's more Mercedes and Porsches and BMWs sold globally than there is obviously motorcycles. So obviously you have this disproportional amount of funding and resources going to 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 making things um, faster, quicker, leaner, meaner, and um, it's all relative in both sports. But you know whether they get frustrated with the pay. You know, obviously the MotoGP guys are paid well, but obviously they've got that component. So what you know, I, there's not many. It's again, it's just the, the the minority of people that might be a little bit negative towards our sport. But ultimately, we um, we love we love their sport. So that's all that matters. <laughs> we love your sport as well. So. That is definitely. Yeah. And then, so I think one of the other things that's interesting is okay, there are differences and everything else. But motorsport is quite unique compared to a lot of other sports. Because, like, in football, you've got a load of people on the pitch all working together as a team. In F1, in MotoGP, obviously you have that team, you have that support structure, and they're incredibly important, but they're in the garage and they're not in the car with you. In addition, your teammate is the guy you want to beat, not the guy you're passing to most of the time. Um, is that, what do you make of that difference? Do you think it makes motorsport something that stands apart a little bit compared to other kind of sports? 
Yeah, I think the individual individual gladiatorial component is something which people love to to associate with and follow. Of course, they have their favourite riders. We know that they're quite tribal with that. We have people that are tribal with Liverpool and Manchester United, just like they are with Valentino and and, and Mark and, and Jorge or anyone that's a, a, towards the front. Um, so same with us. You know, there's there's going to be tension just because fans gravitate towards one individual. Um, but you're right. We have all the surrounding noise and all the preparation that goes with that. You know, they the, Mark Marquez knows that the guy that does his front tire blanket, you know, it, at Le Mans when it's normally freezing cold, that he needs to make sure that guy's done his job right because no one home will never know that guy. But he's a key he's a key factor in in the first lap of a Grand Prix, or whatever. So they've got lots of lip and dominoes effect that that these individuals play such a key role in our preparation and our our success. You know, without the team around us, you know, we would, and it's just, it's, it's very much a cliche, obviously, but it's just, it's actually like that. We cannot go and prepare our own bike and go racing now. We cannot go and prepare our own go racing. We are so specialised now. We turn up and get in the garage, get the notes. Here we go. Everyone's well briefed, prepared well, go out there and do it. So you've got that brilliant sort of brotherhood and, of course, all team spirit in terms of female. Everyone's in there together, which is sensational. But you're the end product. You're the end user. You're the guy that's going to go out there and make them proud of all of the work they put in. Um, so that's really, really cool. And um, long may that continue. So then I want to ask from that then is your, like when you talked about tribalism and favourite riders, you, said, you mentioned at the start of the, the interview that the that Schwantz and Rainey, those guys were your, were your main heroes looking up. In the last 10 years or so, who have you been your main guys then that you've been cheering for? Or did he have any? Yeah, well, well, naturally, um, you know, still, I'm, I'm close to, to, to Mick doing, and I followed Mick a lot when he was racing, which was great. And then obviously, all of his mechanics um, stayed with Valley Valentino when, when they, when they, when Mick retired. Um, so I, I had a, a natural sort of slipstream into just sort of hanging out in that box, and because I knew JB and, and all of the guys um, still do to this day, which that you know, it was always. Nice to just go there and, and experience the sport that I love, but I would be get such a good lowdown on how it's all going without interrupting their work because they you know they've got a job to do. But I just wanted to keep it, you know, have a get a little bit in my veins and then and then uh, soak it up, which I loved. And then so naturally, you know, out out, out of that come a come a good relationship with Valentino, um, and then obviously through Red Bull with now you know Mark, they helped him drive the Formula One car uh, in the last few years, which has been good. I mean, you cannot help but admire how he's lifted the bar and, and really um, literally puts that bike on his back and goes out there and just finds a way to, to get results. Um, so, yeah, lots of – I think those two have, have really, you know, post post Mick um, and, and Wayne and, and, and those guys, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still, you know, I, I find I, when I was racing, I couldn't watch it as much. But when I'm now I've stopped racing, I really find the time to try and watch as much as I can. Uh, I'd love it on free to wear a bit more in places in terms of when you're traveling. It's not always easy to find in terms of um, you're flicking it on and, and getting it. But um, I'm going to subscribe to your website this year, MotoGP, oh. you guys get going again. I'll tell you and, what, I'll tell you uh, what, Mark, we're going to cut the interview there. That's the advert yeah. done. See you later. Cheers for that one. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, look, you know, it's. Um, yeah, I just uh, so you know, quick story. I was at, I was doing an appearance in Laguna Seca for Porsche um, last year, I think it was, and um, it was last year, two years ago now, end of last year. And um, going to the track, I did an Instagram story because there's a really nice uh, big monument of, of Wayne Rainey going to the circuit there. And I just said, like, there's my hero. It's amazing to, to come to the track. I raced sports cars at, at Laguna, but I haven't been back there for a long time. And then, like later in the day, I was doing the autograph session with all the Porsche drivers. There was loads of us doing that, and um, just going through all the the, uh, the queue there, which was fine. The next minute, then Wayne come around the corner, you know, on the yeah, <laughs> chair and just sit in the chair. And I'm like, well, I haven't met him before, and he's like, um, yeah, good to meet you. And I'm like, wow. So I stopped the session. And I just want to talk to him. And Porsche were like, we need to get through the autographs. And I'm like, guys, don't worry about the autographs at the moment. I'm I'm getting my own autograph. So um, yeah. <laughs> Great to spend time with him, and then since then we've, we've struck up a relationship. He took me to see his, his bike in, in in California. There, he won the championship on it was Yamaha sent to him, which was really really special because that was the that was the bike that was the poster on my wall, you know. So it was just, and there he was with me, and he 
said, would you like to sit on my bike? I'm like, bloody hell, mate. So I was like this, like my wife said, she said, I haven't seen you smile for a month. Like just, yeah. Beat my face. So I was, yeah, it was really touching and just what a cute quality human being. Really enjoyed it. And um, I sent the photos to Mick. I said, look who I'm with. And, and Mick really enjoyed it. So I think it was, yeah, it was a really good, good moment. That sounds like a good move. I think a lot of people don't seem to realise nowadays that their hero also has heroes. Mm. And uh, I think it's it's an interesting thing sometimes because you get such huge amounts of followers, especially in F1 and then obviously endurance as well. We do MotoGP. They're all big sports. But you guys as well have that person where you'll internally go, a little bit and there's heroes that you'll look up to of course you'll have your fanboy moment because naturally <laughs> there is that you know those those individuals were representing their sport in such a tremendous way and, and and again it was just out of passion enthusiasm and drive that they had and um you know it was virtually win at all costs i mean they were extraordinary you know again they were trailblazers before their time. They were all, I'm talking about that those four guys that we mentioned sort of in the, in the 90s or in the 500s, and, and they were they're all fit, they're all lean, they're all you know pushing each other to new, new levels, and and um, yeah, that was something which it's only when you turn pro yourself later on you realise you know how significant yes the role that they played in your mind because naivety is bliss when you're young you think like this is never achievable like it's like these guys are made you know it's just they're, they're not human and then when you start to go on your own journey and then ultimately i turn professional myself you realize that yes they're human yes they're normal guys but also you realize what they put into their careers as well um and it's not for everyone that's why you know 99.9 percent need not apply to that type of work because um you can get through that sort of lower phase in here where the volume is but those guys right at the top that also don't have a long career that's the next thing you can be there for two or three years but if you're going to have a really long career then they're the type of guys i love to be around because you just learn so much off something i found very fascinating even just in our very very small roles in the sports uh of like what doing these podcasts and everything thing like that getting to meet some of the guys that I look up to when i was a kid i was you know four years old watching steve hislop and neil mckenzie go around thruxton they were they were my thing on the cadbury's boost yamaha yeah. but then getting to speak to people 95? now yeah yeah uh, 90 uh 90 uh 6 97 98 yeah yes yeah, yeah. and um and so during the, during that, I'm looking up and they're like my superheroes. You get so nervous. But then getting the actual chance to speak to people like yourself as well, this, this, the thing that strikes me is just how normal all these people are. But then they do these very extraordinary things, which some you might get lucky to see in person where you think, oh, yeah, that's the bit where they're really not normal. And uh, for the time I saw that was when um, I'd just done an interview a couple of years ago with um, Paul Espargo. Just, I just went and did his interview after a session. The next session, I managed to go out and watch uh, over the crest of a jello coming down to turn one. And I watched, yeah. and he was so nice, so personable just before that in that interview. And he was like, okay, have a good day, see you later. And then I went to uh, watch him go over the crest and his bike just went, just squirrely over it. And I thought, that's really frightening. And I thought, this normal guy, that's the extra level where he is. Everything else is normal, but just that little bit there is where he's an extraordinary human being. Do you find the same with people you meet? Yeah, I think that fight or flight, I mean, there's so many of them that I've come across um, in, in lots of different sports and they have this, you know, what's that white line fever where they go across and, and, and they have that um, change of personality, let's say. You know, they, they really take on the the responsibility, whether it's a team sport, whether it's an individual sport, they can. It's, it is a bit of a switch. It is a bit of a switch, like you say, where he can be sitting with you, chilling out, um, and then going into the mode that he's so experienced with. You've got so much um, currency with it. Like I said before, it's like a language. You learn this. You've got you've, you've got so much exposure to to doing this job. Um, you know, it's it's no different to a musical instrument or a rock star or someone that you know that, that wants to do a concert and they, they can still get a guitar out around the fire Wednesday night and do something very very special um, because that's what they're they're phenomenal at. Um, so, yeah, that's um, seen it many times. Seen it many times, mate. That um, yeah, no, never judge a book by its cover. Mm. Is there anybody that you that you've uh, met and you've had a genuine conversation with? Them? It doesn't have to be biased; could be anywhere. And then you've thought afterwards, like, I can't believe that guy does what he does. Yeah, I think probably the biggest extreme difference I've seen in terms of it's it's probably mate outside sport is actually the special forces. Like it's like the military guys. Like you just think they are 
they're in the Tesco's queue and they want to look normal. They want to look, they are, but they're so not. They're so not. And they are special guys. And I, and I've been fortunate again to, to, to meet some of those guys and, and whether they're in, whether they're active or whether it's post and you sort of work out how, again, they were very special what they needed to do. And, um, most of the people will not have a clue. That's what they did. And they don't bang on about it either, but they just did what they did and that was it. So I really, you know, great lessons in that as well, just how, how humble and how, um, how rounded they are and how just grounded and yeah. So that's, that's great. And then some other sports as well. Yeah. You just got guys who in AFL, which is a sport in Australia, you know, it's a, it's a pretty tough football code down there. And you've got guys who are like little teddy bears off the field, but you put them on the field and they just, they're looking, they just, they just, looking for scratch they're looking for fights they're looking for action and it's like this guy is not like he's just not like that off the field but on the field they can't help themselves that does seem to be a switch that a lot of professional sportsmen have that you kind of just go into beast mode and then it's done um but then there's a lot of difference in a lot of characters as well like nowadays we have like leclerc lando norris streaming their life playing stuff online esport hours and then you have the likes of you and Vettel who seem to leave the track, go home and shut the door. Yeah. And it seems like there's quite a big difference nowadays. Do you have you do you more kind of think of yourself as that kind of guy who doesn't walk around thinking I'm the F one driver and you're more like, well I did that because I was at work and now I'm at home. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like any moment I could get out of my racing suit, I did. You know, I did not want to be I wanted to have that on longer than I needed to. Um, I needed, I obviously wore it for my profession, but so whenever I could extend myself, if I needed to, to, to portray that I was, that was my profession, then I could, if I could stop it where I could, then, then I would, but I, you know, in terms of, I had to do the job at hand and then I would, switch off and then and then get out of that but um these days you're right like it's incredible how you know with all this esports stuff and the rest of it like it's you sound geriatric i'm i'm 44 this year but you know i've, I've raced sim i've done simulators in terms of uh, with the race team but um to go on there and and have this whole you know streaming and twitch and the whole thing which i don't even know how it works with <laughs> i don't really need to know how it works. But in terms of all that you know, it, it, it's it's just a natural evolution of where it's. I'm not against yeah. it. It's just where it is because you know when I'm when they're 44, they're going to be looking at the guys when they're 22. <laughs> young. They're, you know, what the hell are they up to? So it's just it, it, it's just cyclical. It just goes through the processes and and um yeah. So I'll leave I'll leave that to them. They're the pros um and they're the tech geeks too. You know, I've got you know, we've got we've got zooms. We've got we got we got. You know all these. You know I've got so many passwords in front of me here of what, 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 how I can log into all these things now. Um, and um, so yeah, it's um, one thing this virus has done. It's got us a little bit more tech savvy. But I'm not going super tech on the simulators. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to say that wasn't a criticism of those guys. I personally find myself watching it and find it really entertaining for like maybe an hour, and time disappears. The idea of me doing that horrifies me <laughs> so, yeah. like I don't, I don't know what it is like I think I, I just don't like that kind of thing I would constantly just be sat looking at the camera like what do I look like what's happening what are people thinking uh, probably a reflection on me yeah. but it does seem quite a generational thing oh. in a lot of ways yeah. literally yeah well that was a funny thing have you did you get a chance so well, I don't suppose you, you probably will have done but if you saw some of the virtual races that we did and one of the some of the funniest parts is uh, the riders who just completely forget there's a, there's a camera there and Alex Rins bless him I think it was the first one he just he had no socks on and his toe was right in front of the camera <laughs> the whole time and I was like Alex no no and clearly no one told him that was the issue but... oh yeah um well, you know, if you're going to lose your esports virginity, you might as well go and style, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Fran, you, uh, I was, I'm going to steal one of the questions, which uh, topics which you wanted to bring up actually, because uh, do want to do want to do a relatable topic to from your career to to MotoGP. Um, so obviously, we don't have to go into uh, records with teammates or experiences with teammates exactly. But from your experience of of teammate and maybe issues that arose, things like Spag, etc. Do you see any parallels between sort of relationships between teammates 
in MotoGP at all these days or over the last few years, things that interesting you thought, yeah, I know what that guy's going through. Yeah, sure. I think that um, naturally when you're on the same equipment and you've got the sort of, you know, the the team is in a position to win. That's the, that's when it gets challenging. I think that when teammates um, are fighting for thirds, fourths, fifths, the relationship can be a little bit better. But when you start to go for wins and world championships, then it gets really, really frosty because ultimately it doesn't matter really what colour the bike is at that point. Like if it is Valentino and Jorge, as we know, that was that was challenging. But it's like even it doesn't matter who, as we've seen with Valentino, it was whether it was Casey Stone or whether it was, you know, with Mark or whoever, that could have been a teammate or wasn't a teammate. There still was issues because it was around victories was the was the problem, you know. And if you've got this then in-house as well, it can accelerate that tension because trust can be – it's around the trust. You know, thinking about Lynn Jarvis, for example, how does he manage these, these two guys that he's employed to push each other? But ultimately, you can get to a point in the championship where there's only one bowl of food and there's two dogs and you've got to then – it sort of works out that you, you've got to have a bit of a scrap in your own – in your own field, let's say. So um, managing that is not easy because, again, that's what you're employing them to win, but they don't hand out two first-place trophies. So it is, it is, it is a, it's a quandary that um, oft, it's, it's like that in motorsport. And I did a Zoom not long ago where someone was saying, what if that was all single bike teams? You know, how would it be? Well, I said, well, there'd be like, you know, there would be less issues, but teams don't operate that. The contracts are now as such that whether it's Formula 1 or MotoGP, you've got to turn up with two bikes or three bikes and you go racing and then you've got to manage those riders as best you can. And if they just happen to be spending a, a big majority of the season on the same piece of Asheville, that's a problem because they're going to obviously come across each other quite a bit. Um, so a lot of similarities, mate. I think it's just managing it. And it's also the technical process too, you know, getting the horsepower in terms of which riders getting, you know, where's the momentum going? Clearly, if you're going to turn up at Honda, you have to ride similar to how Mark does because that's where the energy is, you know. But if you've got two similar styles in terms of, again, I've got no idea about how some of the, the Yamaha situation when Valentino and, and, and Jorge were teammates. Um, same with Mick Doohan back in the 500 days. Well, Mick, you know, he had so many injuries, so then he had to break on the you know, he, he actually, you know, ergonomically changed that bike. And then people were like, well, we want to copy that. We want to do it. But because they weren't injured, they didn't need to actually do it. So they didn't have to cross that bridge. So technically, he took that Honda on another journey that only he could sort of handle. And he made it work for him because that was his way. And he was highly successful with that. So if the team go with you and you've got the belief from the team and the, and the, and, and the people that are funding the R&D, um, that's another big component too. Um so yeah, it's it's that comes under all the professionalism topics, you know, of how you're going to be a pro with not only yourself in your own career, but the people around that are going to ma- manipulate the performance of your bike in the way that you want it to be consistently. Whether it's you know a, a, all the different tracks around the world they go to, that you're going to be comfortable to win a championship on. Yeah, it is. It's a topic with a lot of parallels between the two, and there's obviously a few situations where there's been obvious signs of either team orders or the team putting their eggs in someone's basket. Um, like, I can't really think of a MetaGP one quite. We had the suggested mapping eight at Sepang, which seemed like it was very much a team order. And it's the personalities of who's in charge that has to try and keep that mood different. Or do you think sometimes it's just going to break and you just have to keep going and deal with the fact that there's also that kind of friction? Yeah, well, you, you you certainly know what you're taking on if you go, like, look at this, for example, now, you know, Sebastian Vettel could drive for Mercedes next year. Highly unlikely, highly unlikely, but obviously that's going to be, could be a challenging situation, not only for for both the drivers in terms of handling those two guys there, but also the media, you know, the whole thing. Just you are loading the dice for potentially more headaches than less because Lewis is, you know, in a great place and he could do very, very well with the situation as it is at the moment, which 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 is him and him and Valtteri. Um, Mark, the same thing. You might say, I mean, Danny Pedrosa had a phenomenally long motor motor GP career. You know, his size, he, the way he, the results he got on that thing. You know, he was it was incredible. But to have, I mean, we haven't found anyone to match Mark yet. But the probably the best scenario, which you mentioned, the the, the Yamaha wall, um, they were very very even for a long period of time, and that took. A lot of management did all of us as a neutral see some amazing races like Barcelona, obviously some of these incredible things that happened. 
unbelievable. I still get goosebumps now looking back at the race when I want to watch it, which is awesome. But that's stress for the team. That is horrible for the team because they could be both outside in the in the hay bales and then, you know, third place comes through, another manufacturer, job done. So um, you got to know what you're taking on. If you're big enough, enough to have a wall down the middle and be able to handle the two alpha males in that situation and culturally different too, right? Pretty much a, a, it was a Spanish team with Jorge and then you obviously had Valentina with a mix of Italians and Australians, but they, they won't have been about it. Um, was was really very intense and they both had their, their job to do. Valentino is box office in terms of the sport. He's for manufacturers. He's, he has a lot of pull. Um, but, yeah, I think the writing's on the wall. You know effectively what you're taking on. Um, and unless it manifests itself. Of course, a young guy can come from nowhere and cause headaches, which often you see, like the, the changing of the guard in the course of a season. Well, we didn't expect this. Where's this guy come from? Well, this is an issue where... Um, so, yeah, you might have to deal with that, but that's a good problem to have. And then you've got the other guys as well, not just uh, teammates and things like that, but you've got uh, people inside your manufacturer, for example. Nobody, like you mentioned at the end, there, nobody expected Quattararo to come in last year yeah. and be as strong as he was. And then now, well, there's all sorts of headaches going on at Yamaha and I suppose at Petronas at some points because we've got no racing at the moment, but then Quattararo's already signed for the factory team next year. Obviously, we are, we're, we're meant to be going racing at the end of the July and stuff, but yeah, that just adds another dynamic, especially when it's almost so out of the blue like he was. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was very comfortable basketball, and that was awesome to watch that he he, he um, put the cat amongst the, pigeon, amongst the pigeons really quickly, and um, it wasn't a fluke. It was clear that he was he was special, and um, in a in a, even I'm not saying that it wasn't a professional environment that he was, but clearly there's going to be one or two, three percent more professionalism um, at the works team in terms of what he's going to have access to. Um, so that's only going to help his performance. I think another thing as well, it's going to be interesting with. Andrea Davizioso with so much experience. Mm. Now, sorry if you don't like this comparison, feel free. There are a few parallels between you and him yeah. in the way that you really seem to hit your stride, certainly in terms of results, mm. a bit later in your careers. Correct. Both Red Bull athletes as well, to give them a shout out. Yeah. Um, but do you think sometimes this rush, we talked to Neil Hodgson about this last week, there seems to be a rush to sign the new guy as soon as possible, but sometimes you can unlock more from yourself as an athlete and from a new environment, even when you're not maybe 22. Yeah, sensational points. I mean, for me, you know, I felt I was ready, you know, around 25, 26, and I still believe to this day that I was, but I didn't really have the environment to win in. But um, so, but I was continued to be, I was continued continuingly to be um, gaining that experience and, and you know, the, the school of hard knocks and with failures comes education and, and getting, you know, taking the adversity and putting it into a positive and, and, and getting more experience with that. So, yeah, I you're right. My career was, in a way, I, I was very much loaded towards the end of my career in terms of the, the, the lion's share of my success was at the end. Now, was that down to experience or, or being with the right team? I'd say more in the team environment, but, but yes, you know, Neil has a great point in terms of, yeah, we can rush into, you know, the next young, the next big thing. If you have big security on him, which is sensational, are you going to have a lot of a lot of bikes in the, in the tie barriers? Yes, you are. We're going to prepare to have some of those. Um, and, yeah, but as long as the loyalty is reciprocal in terms of he's going to be with you for a long time, then that's a brilliant investment. But if you're going to have to go through that pain as a manufacturer, then it's going to be hard to keep hold of him. And that's that's obviously a really big challenge because, like I say, someone like Davizioso, pretty reliable, you know, pretty reliable. Um, you know, he's 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 not, um, you know, he's he's not Mark Marquez. We know that, but but in terms of like he's given him Mark a few headaches in the, in the last few years. He's pretty under the radar. Monday to Friday turns up, does his thing. Um, so. Yeah, if you want a lot of points on Sunday and you want someone that's pretty consistent at most venues, I mean, Davizio, you know, he's, Andre's, he's done a great job. And, and as you say, the, the last part of his career, he's been undervalued in some ways because he hasn't, you know, you know, where this is a fine line, isn't it? Brand, you know, you've got perception, <laughs> perception and brand, you know, this sort of Monday to Friday, this sort of blown out of something, what are they? Um, or, you know, if he, if he played that differently, I'm not saying he should, but let's say he, he had that time again and, and really, you know, 
the charismatic side or however it turned out, would, would he have had a different career in choices and finances and what? Who <coughs> certainly gets the results in. Did you watch the documentary which Red Bull made about him? Uh, I haven't. Not oh, yet. Would thoroughly recommend it. It's it, it goes into it's the first time in terms of like revealing his personality a lot more that he's actually done something like that. He did an in depth interview, talked through the main points of the season, and most fascinating thing was how he's trained his he's trying to train his mind for absolute concentration. And they were using this contraption where he's got like a skeleton around his head, and every single time he's watching a race and he has a thought that sort of distracts him from the race, the screen blanks. And uh, he's trying to train himself to do that. And I thought it was totally fascinating because I genuinely, I, well, happy to be stand corrected. I don't think anybody else on the MoGP grid is going <coughs> to that extent to try and, well, be yeah. the Marquez, essentially, you know? Great. Great. Yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll dig that out, buddy. I'll have a look for it. Yeah, shouldn't be too difficult. Yeah. Red Bull. Um, I'll tell you what, we're, one, one more topic I kind of want to ask you about. We touched a little bit earlier on, um, and then we'll, we've got a quick fire round to finish because I'm conscious we've had you for about 50 minutes now. Um, yeah. I want to talk a bit about the, the physical stresses of, of motorsport and everything because doing the research, I found out that you did the Leadville 100 a couple of times. Um, I want to ask you about how the differences in because obviously you would have trained you've your mountain biker would have been a hobby for long. Know what the level one hundred is? But, oh well, uh, no, no, no one know what the level. Well, level one hundred for everyone listening. Good point. Thank you. So you would be good at a podcast. Um, level one hundred is one of the hardest mountain bike races out there. One hundred miles at altitude in Colorado. Um, there's a really good film about it, which I think Rafa did on their YouTube channel. Anyone listening can go have a look. But you've done it twice, right? Three times, yeah. Three times. Whew. So what? So the different. One. What? So what, was, what was that? Sorry. Year two. I don't know why I remember things like this. Year two, you beat your personal best by seven minutes. That's year right. three, a little bit. Yeah, low. Too much beer. <laughs> well, yeah, not bad, not bad. But that one, that that sort of stress on your body is so different, I would imagine, compared to what, for example, a two-hour, like, because it's how many, eight, over eight hours, seven hours or so. Yeah. How do you I, prepare your body for that sort of thing? How does that compare to the physical stresses of your job? Uh, well, I, when I was preparing for the season in Formula One, I liked to be a jack-of-all-trades and a legend of none. You know, I did swim, I, I enjoyed running, um, loved mountain biking, loved road cycling. Um Minimal gym work because I was, unfortunately, I was a little bit tall for my job. So at 183 centimetres and 74 kilos when I was, I was my fighting weight. Um, so if I put too much muscle on in terms of too much strength, oh, upper body stuff, then obviously that would be to my detriment in the car. So I had to find these. Well, I enjoyed the cardio sports, don't get me wrong. It was never a chore for me to apply myself on the, on the fitness side of things, which I enjoyed. It's also a bit of an escapism. I love being out in nature and just gyms in general. I'm not a fan of gyms and you know and and guys you know doing the bicep curls in front of the mirror <laughs> and checking tattoos. It's not really my bag, but um, I prefer to be. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I seek great satisfaction in, in and some people think it's weird, but in, in, from a sadistic perspective, I suppose. But in terms of getting a mountain biking and, and and climbing a ginormous or riding up a, a ginormous climb for an hour and a half or two hours. Um, knowing that I've done that myself, getting up there and and having that that satisfaction and 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 seeing the elements and seeing the weather and seeing like you know it sounds weird but I I do like being out in the elements. Um, so that was that was something which wasn't a chore. So for me, mate, yeah, when I when I was competing if, w- with that fitness, I enjoyed doing some events too. Like I did do some other other racing events, whether it was mountain bike racing or sort of adventure racing. So I thought, well, I've got all this fitness from my profession, which I enjoy doing. And if I can go and have some fun in some other, other sports as well, I'd enter under a bullshit name and then I'd do this race here <laughs> at the back and do my thing and have some fun and, and go. So yeah, it was, it was um, enjoyable, but the, but the Leadville hundred, or I've done some big long adventure races too, which is sort of over a week long or whatever. They've been, they've been fun. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I enjoy them, mate, and uh, I'll do more of them in the future. So, um, but there's some phenomenally fit, you know, motocross guys and two wheel guys. I think the lion's share of motorbike guys are definitely fitter than the, the, the Formula racing guys, for sure. Okay, interesting. All of this then, and what you said at the start of this uh, podcast as well. I'm curious if you've ever considered the Dakar. Yeah, um, it's an interesting point. Um, I've spent 
a bit of time talking to Carlos Sanzina about it and um, just getting an idea of, and Sebastian Loeb actually uh, spent some time with him quite a few years ago. Again, it's very specialised. We spoke about that earlier in the interview. Um, it's going to take a tremendous amount of commitment, big commitment, which is which is great. That's fine. There's no no shortcuts in this type of activities uh, when we talk about top end motorsport. And I think again, from the from the adventure side, would be fascinating to to take something like that on. I'd learn a lot about myself. I'd learn a lot about you know the mechanical componentry and then preparing the car and, and keeping the car alive and all the buggy or whatever whatever I do it in. Which I probably don't think I'll do it just because the dunes, the dunes do scare the shit out of me. They do scare me <laughs> in terms of how unpredictable, how tricky the knowledge. Yeah, it looks crazy. Yeah, you need a lot of knowledge in dunes. I've done a little bit in the Middle East with guys that are super experienced and that was, there's so many landmines that it's really, really challenging. So I think that that wouldn't be too cool. To go out there and 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 look like a total clown and do that and, and yeah because as you as always we know oh you know I'll do it for fun I won't do it too serious you know right then you get the helmet on and then all of a sudden it's a problem <laughs> races you're all the same yeah <laughs> to, to tell you one so, thing I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a curveball because I have to ask you it as you're in Australia and you got the Red Bull cap on Jack Miller next year factory Ducati mm-hmm. what do yeah. you make of it great I'm really mate I'm I'm so stoked for him. Um, I only, well, only, I sent him a little message on, on Instagram just to congratulate him. Um, you know, I haven't got his details, so, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, you know, he's worked hard and he's had some tricky moments early in his career. Um, and I think that he will, he will really, really grab this opportunity with everything that he's got. I think he's going to be as, as prepared as he can be. Um, is he going to continue to learn? Absolutely. I think someone like him will really, benefit even more from from having that 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 next layer of professionalism in terms of just putting the weekends together technically structurally you know what to focus on and and keeping it all um sort of bigger picture stuff because when you're sort of fighting the good fight fighting your own fight sometimes you need a bit of that someone else to, to help you on that journey and i think that um i can certainly relate to that which i went through in terms of you know having once you even get yourself in a more established and, and calmer environment then you can really come come of age yourself and I think this will be the making of Jack Miller in terms of um, taking a bit of there'll be some more pressure but I think there'll be that he'll feel that he's on good stuff now and he's around good people um, I'm not saying that he wasn't before but it's just again it's this next layer and everyone knows it, it is it's, it's a better environment um, so and good teammate he's going to learn a truckload there so it's going to be I'm, I'm frothing I can't wait to see how it goes <laughs> Silverstone cancelled, Australia cancelled. So some of my, some of my faves. So I need to look at the calendar when it's really launched out, and I need to, um, I need to get to an event if you're allowed, of course. You know, I'm, I'm just a punter, so that's the next thing. It's probably all TV or, or MotoGP, um, you know, dot com, but that's about it. Yeah, no, unfortunately, <laughs> even even the great Mark Webber, unfortunately, you are just a spectator when it comes to that sort of thing in the global pandemic, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah, total punter. Well, I tell you what, it sounds like you do have to get to Phillip Island as well to watch Jack at his home race at some point anyways. Yes. Well, that'll be next year now, won't it? Yeah. So, so um, yeah, for, well, just for the MotoGP fans actually listening, what foot race have you been to before that you actually oh, wish oh, circuits? Um, Donington to watch Mick. Um, been, to Valentin, been to Phillip Island a lot. Um, I've been to uh, Mugello, um, Silverstone, um yeah, they've been the normal. They've been the normal events, mate. Um, oh, I've been to Mazzano as well. Mm. Um, that was the year I took loads of mates, and we were they were all ready to have the big watch Valentino at home, and I bigged it up six months out, all planned, busy guys, all come in, and then that's when he broke his leg. <gasps> so, didn't, so uh, oh no, <laughs> pissed down rain the whole weekend. We were there, so. Um, Anyway, um, but mate, I've got Aston. I want to go to Aston. Um, I want to do that. I want to do Jerez. Um, but I mean, back when it's back to normal, I want to go there with a bit of atmosphere. And I mean, I'm still going to watch those races. Don't get me wrong on TV. But um, yeah, there's a few. I'm happy I've done Mugello, but I want to go and see, um, as I say, a couple of a couple of silver classics. Awesome. Fun. Awesome. Shall we do uh, the Kenwood Quickfire then? 
Let's see if my internet can survive quickfire exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, right a bit chippy. So this, uh, this section is sponsored by Kenwood, who also give us our radios in the Meta GP paddock to allow us to pretend to be parts of the FBI. Yeah, um, <laughs> so um, it's basically, usually we either do word association or just quickfire questions. We've chosen quickfire questions for you. Okay. Some of them are super simple. Um, don't be too scared of telling a little story if you don't want to just give one word. That's fine as well. Uh, yeah. Matt, do you want to start off? Yeah, I shall. So we'll start off very easy. Coffee or tea? Bear in mind, I think. Oh. Coffee. Yeah. Well, there we go. Good choice. Uh, Marmite or Vegemite? Oh, taffy or Vegemite. <sighs> okay. Well, we're not allowed to disagree in this one, are we? Um, Magello <laughs> or Spa Francochamp? What am I on? Blown boy. Up to you. Uh, Magella. Okay, interesting. Uh, your favourite place in the world? Not a track, just a place. Uh, Noosa, Australia. Uh, favourite circuit? Uh, Nordschleife. Oh, interesting. Uh, rugby or cricket? Uh, wow. Um... Probably crickets, but I'm quickly falling out of love with both at the moment. Shame. Uh, which is tougher? Sorry, we asked. Yeah, <laughs> I could have a wound. Um, which is tougher on the mind, the Leadville 100 or the graveyard shift in Le Mans? Ah, uh, great question. Um, probably Leadville. <laughs> okay. Um, At the end of Leadville, when you're tired, that's hard. That's hard. You gotta you gotta be pretty tough mentally to keep pedaling. Honestly, I found it tough mentally just to read the altitudes. <laughs> I, I cannot imagine. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Um, okay, so who has been your best student that you've showed how to drive or uh, help them out with some tips? Ooh, best student. Um street car or racing car? Race car. Race car. Oh, shivers. Um, probably Brendan Hartley. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Probably uh, my sport. Yeah, like not that you needed much, but it was just, I think we just had a good, you know, I mean, the, the, as one team, we were great anyway. Timo, Timo Bernard and um, Brendan and myself, really, really good little team. But I really enjoyed working with Brendan. It was, it was good fun, and I hope that you got a little bit out of it. It was, good. It was really rewarding. Okay. And fa- uh, favourite on-track moment of your career? Um, probably my first Formula 1 victory in Germany, 2009, or also winning the Monaco Grand Prix for the first time um, in 2010. So, um, yeah, they were pretty uh, reasonably large days. They were pretty impressive, yeah. In my mind, I felt very completely stoked and relieved and happy. And, yeah, it was, I think, over 20 years between drinks for Australia and winning at that level, so I had a bit of had a bit of a job to do. <laughs> uh, what about your most unexpected win? Um, most unexpected win? Um, do, 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 probably, um, I'm, I'm not going to say, it wasn't even a win, but it was like a win. It was my first Grand Prix in Australia, and I was driving in total ship box. It was a Monad, like small team, um, and Monadi for me. <laughs> Manati Formula One team, which was a brilliant team to drive for, but super underfunded. And we had only done 10 laps in testing, like, you know, in its entirety, basically getting to that race. It was the preparation was horrendous. Finished the Grand Prix, finished fifth, which was unbelievable. Got World Championship points because everyone took themselves out at the first corner. The race should have been red flagged all day long, but it wasn't because it was in Australia. The race continued and I got a result. So that was. A fifth place, but it was worth like three victories. Oh, that's nice. Okay, so that's cool. Penultimate ones, then uh, they're quite similar. Describe F one in three words or less. Um, intense, um, violent, and rewarding. Hmm. Okay. Now the predictable finale question. Describe MotoGP in three words or less. Oh, geez. Um, nerve-wracking. Is that two? 
Yeah. <laughs> <Nah>. is one. <laughs> uh, gladiatorial. Um, and what would the last one be? Uh, nerve-wracking gladiatorial and, well, I don't know, I mean, warriors. Same awesome. as But, you know, man and machine, all the rest of it, you know, it's still... It's, it's tremendously old school. I still love it. It's good. Awesome. Well, it was two words or less anyway. So there you go. That was the Kenwood Quickfire with Mark Webber. Um, well, Mark, I'll tell you what, it's been really good fun to get to know. You get to talk a bit of bikes and about some other random things as well. Um, it's been good fun. Um, really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. And look forward to seeing you guys at the first few races. And well, watching MotoGP at the first few races. Yeah. And, and um, if anyone's still with us and hadn't fallen asleep, hope you enjoyed the chat. Thanks. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I've not actually listened to the episode at the time of recording the outro, but I really hope after talking with Neil Hodgson about people doing weird accents, but they're talking to people with different accents to theirs, neither me or Fran actually did an Australian accent. That is a big, big concern of mine, but hopefully we evaded it. (laughs) After having listened back to the little bit of our episode with Hodgie as well, I noticed how much more northern I went compared to when I've been talking to other people. Yeah, I don't think I've ever looked so southern or felt so southern, to be honest. But uh, (laughs) yes, well, I'll tell you what, uh, something we're going to do after after this, uh, after actually speaking with these uh, special guests, people in the broader MotoGP community, going to suggest a couple of things for you guys to go and search out on the interweb after each episode. So after this one, F1 cars and MotoGP bikes going through Maggots and Beckett's at Silverstone. Go and check that out. Next up, also F1 cars through the swimming pool chicane uh, in Monaco. And then, of course, please go and check out the Leadville 100 bike race because that is a true beast. Um, Fran, something else that cropped up and has cropped up quite a lot um, in us doing these interviews is we chat to a lot of pretty ordinary folk doing very extraordinary things, it seems. I think so. And that echoes back a little bit as well to our podcast with Neil Hodgson, when we were talking about paddock preconceptions and actually how everyone's so friendly. And I think that's true about so many athletes and people who are famous in terms of a brand image and their job or what they do. But underneath it, most people are just normal, but they have an exceptional skill set or talent that allows them to do these incredible things that why we celebrate. Yeah. So I think it's it's an interesting dynamic, I think, definitely. And, uh, yeah, a bit of a different one in next week's guest, however. Yes. Because it's not, not necessarily a sports person. No, but we but are switching... Yes, switching the tone to motorcycling uh, through and through, not just the actual racing aspect, but motorcycling uh, and its role in broader society. We've actually got comedian Ross Noble joining us. Uh, We have. I don't know where he actually is in the world because I thought he was in Australia at one point. I know he had some shows there and then he's got some shows in the UK. So we'll find out when we actually speak to him, uh, which we'll have already spoken to him by the time this comes out. Uh, But Ross Noble, massive biker, loves his MotoGP, loves his World Superbikes, Alaman TT, BSB, name it all. Uh, And I can't wait to speak to him because I'm sure he's got a heck of a lot of stories to tell about riding beyond racing. Most definitely. And of course, another exceptional talent, just not within sport. So I think it'd be a good, interesting perspective for someone who's coming at it as someone who loves riding and bikes and therefore is also a fan of the sport. Hopefully you'll stick with us for that one as well. Hope you've enjoyed this one. Thank you very much. Get in touch. Use the hashtag MotoGP podcast. And uh, to I think. Yes, we'll make sure we try and not to take it the mick out of any accents next week as well. Let's keep our fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. Yeah.